It's good to be with you guys tonight. <sighs> okay, we're going to read our scripture from John 12, 20 through 33. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who is from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The word of the Lord. Good evening. Thanks, Sarah Claire, for reading. Thank you, Danny and the band for uh, leading us in worship. I had way too much coffee this afternoon. Way too much coffee, but thankfully Earl was playing my heartbeat on the drums, so that helped get some of the jitters out. That was awesome. Thank you, Earl. Um, and David, we haven't heard from David in a little while. The violin was just playing my tears, so I feel like I'm done now. I don't have to actually give this sermon, but I suppose maybe hopefully for your benefit, uh, I will. Uh, have you ever thought about how many paradoxes there are in the Bible? Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus says, the greatest among you must be servant of all. Or Mark chapter 9, verse 35, whoever wants to be first must be last. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that it's only when we're weak that we are strong. And then in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And we have another paradox here in John 12, verse 25. It says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines a paradox as something which, on the face of it, seems self-contradictory, absurd, or even against common sense, though on a closer look, it may be found to be true. 
I like this definition because, first of all, it doesn't take away from the fact that these statements, sometimes these that we find in Scripture, on a first reading, they are absurd. They're absurd. Some of us have maybe grown up in church or been around church for a long time, and we can say something like, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, like I just woke up and made myself a cup of coffee. Just an everyday thing that we say. And in some ways, these paradoxes, we become too comfortable with them. They lose their force, and we just skip right over them. It's especially easy to do if we set a paradox to music. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Gonna have to run that back, Mr. Newton. I've got to, I'm not quite sure I understand. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's so easy to just pass it by. Grace gets you coming and going, which is going to be the title of another sermon. That'll be for another time. Grace gets you coming and going. But I want to look a little harder at this paradox in John chapter 12. Because if we say it out loud a couple of times, if we mull it around in our heads, if we actually try to flesh it out or embody it, we might find that we end up in some places that we don't like too much. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let's just play a little round of how can we distort this text, shall we? In the classroom, sometimes we say, how can we problematize the question? Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Okay, I think I can get that one. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. So if I love my life too much, if I try to hang on to it too tightly, then I lose it. I die. But if we carry the logic of that interpretation onto the second half of the paradox, we end up in some form of eternal sadism. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You hate your life, you get to hate you get to keep that hated life forever. Anyone ready to follow Jesus yet? You can keep a hated life. See, the it that is loved too much and which ends in the first half of this paradox, it's got to be the same it that is kept when hated in the second half of this paradox. If I've lost you already, don't worry. I'd lost myself when I was writing this part of the sermon. We're going to try to get ourselves out of this logical spider web at some point. So we want to avoid too strict of a literal interpretation, but we also want to avoid the dispensational way out. Where we create a neat and impenetrable divide between this world and the next world. Here's what that might look like. We key off of that phrase, in this world, in the second half of the paradox. And we'd say something like, I'm supposed to hate my life in this world, and if I do that, then the eternal life that I'll keep, it'll be a life in another world. In the next world. In the new heaven and earth. Well, alright, there might be a little bit of truth in that, but pushed to its logical conclusion, we might be left with a desire to abandon this world. 
And such a posture is sometimes what has led to the justifying of the rape and pillaging of peoples, the rape and pillaging of the earth, sheer neglect of our own health and well-being. In other words, why would we possibly care about flourishing people, flourishing cities, or flourishing environments now if there's this neat and impenetrable divide between this world and the next world? Or we could even reframe the question using last week's gospel reading. God so loved the world, this world, with these creatures, that he sent his only son. So how can we interpret this verse in John chapter 12 to mean we're supposed to hate this world? Have we problematized the question yet? I want us to try and think about what does it mean to love life in this world and therefore lose it? And what would it mean to hate life in this world and therefore keep it for eternal life? Now, I don't want to scare you all off. Keith, don't leave the live stream just yet. There are four points to this sermon. I know it's too much, but I believe in you. Three points under what does it mean to love life in this world. And first of all, it means a combination of self-centeredness and individualism. It's a potent combination in 21st century America, to be sure. It means assessing your life and all it contains and declaring, this is good, I can't ask for more. It means assessing your career. And declaring, I've gotten where I wanted to get, good for me. It means if you have a dream and your dream has been fulfilled, then you can quote unquote die happy. It is, to put it bluntly, complacency born out of privilege and pride. It's to affirm that this world has been good to you, the systems have worked in your favor. And you're content with your reward. Jesus says we can demonstrate this kind of self-centeredness even when we think we're being others-centered. Matthew chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, they have received their reward in full. Loving life in this world is having already received your reward in full. The second thing that loving life in this world means goes along with the first. If it means this self-centered individualism, it also means ignoring the suffering of others. It means refusing to see yourself as a member of the human community. As an individual connected and interdependent on other individuals and communities and creation itself. It means refusing empathy. And the refusal of empathy is to ignore suffering. To pass it by. Like the priest and the Levite passed by the man on the road to Jericho who was beaten and half dead. In a great short description of 
empathy, which you can find on YouTube. I'm sure some of you have seen it. Brene Brown says that recognizing someone's suffering and empathizing with them means you can't respond with at least. This really terrible thing is happening in my life right now. At least this other part of my life is okay. I just had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. At least responses are ultimately self-centered. They're meant to deflect pain and suffering, allowing us to pass by it and keep going, not having to empathize, not having to connect with pain and suffering in others. I caught, I caught myself in this just this week. Lord help me. Most of you I know have heard about the shootings that happened in Atlanta, and I appreciate Sarah Claire helping us to take a moment of silence in memory and honor of those victims. Eight people were murdered. Six of them were women of Asian descent. I got the notification on my phone on a Wednesday morning, and I thought to myself, That's a shame. And then I went right back to scrolling Twitter or checking email or whatever it was I was doing. Eight people dying by homicide at the hands of a crazy man with a gun didn't register on my emotional Richter scale. Just didn't register. Flatlined. Sure, I thought it was bad. I certainly didn't think it was good. But it did not matter to me. My reaction, the lack of disturbance in my heart and soul said, at least it wasn't another unarmed black man. At least it wasn't a school full of children this time. At least it wasn't at the hands of the police. God, forgive me for being so desensitized. We have become so desensitized to this violence, especially gun violence in this country, that we're often past the point of ignoring the suffering caused by it. We don't even see it as suffering. Instinctually, that's what's happening inside us. When we love life in this world, we're willing to say, things are good for me, I don't care who things are bad for. That's refusing to see the suffering of others. That's what I was doing on Wednesday morning. Ignoring it even when we see it. Or seeing it and immediately looking away. But third, loving life in this world is this profound combination of self-centeredness and individualization. And if it also means ignoring the suffering of others, then thirdly, it means limiting our imaginations. We resign ourselves to the limits of this world and the limits of the structures and systems that we humans have built in this world. So now, even if we're able to acknowledge where our systems are broken, 
where they don't operate for the flourishing of all people, where they leave people on the margins, outcast and downtrodden, even then we say to ourselves, well, how could it be any different? How could a new system even work? I can't imagine. And that resignation means our imaginations start to dry up. They wither, even start to die. Here's an example. We got this tree from the city. I know some of you participate in these city initiatives where you get free trees. Brittany and I can't resist them. We've got too many trees already, but every time the city gives away free trees, we're like, yeah, we'll go get two more free trees. Every time. Anyway, a few months ago, we got this tamarind tree. And those of you who have been around a little while know that I love tamarind trees. It's my favorite kind of tree. We got this tamarind tree, but it needed a little bit of TLC when we got it. It was suffering a little bit. So we watered it consistently. We put some new dirt and mulch in with the pot. And it started to look all right. But then we had to go away for a week. And I looked at the weather report. And it was going to rain two or three times that week, and I thought, it's going to be fine. So we left, and we came back, and when we got back, all the leaves had fallen off. And it was just a tiny little trunk with tiny little branches sadly trembling in the wind. And we were pretty sad. I was sad. We had lost a tamarind tree. But it was just one tree. We had other ones, so I pulled it up out of the pot, and I began breaking the little branches off and breaking the little trunk to make kindling for the fire pit or whatever. But the first break of that little trunk was less a break and more a bend. See, the tree wasn't actually dead when I pulled it up out of the pot. I think it had shed its leaves maybe to conserve life, to conserve water until it would get watered again, until it would get nourishment again, but it wasn't dead. The trunk and the branches were still green. What had died was my imagination for what the tree could be, not the tree itself. Loving life in this world means centering me, and whether life is good for me, it means ignoring the suffering of others, and it means resigning my imagination to what my own eyes can see, what my own mind can understand, and what my own heart can feel. So what might it mean to hate life in this world? Even if we're confused by Jesus' saying here in John chapter 12, we can at least get that we want to land in the second half of this paradox. We want to be the life haters, not the life lovers, which is why this is a good paradox. It's not just head-scratching and confusing. It actually makes us land on the counterintuitive side of the paradox. Who wants to be a life hater? So what might it mean? I submit to you that a helpful way for me to frame this idea of hating life in this world is a holy discontent. We want to try to embody a holy discontent, a sense of being pulled towards something more, something other than ourselves, 
being pulled or gathered towards someone whose kingdom is not of this world, but whose kingdom might be what this world could become. A holy discontent embodies a reversal of all the things it means to love life in this world. A holy discontent means being other-centered rather than self-centered. It means standing in a community and being willing to bear each other's burdens and suffering. A holy discontent can see the suffering of others and name it for what it is. Evil. Not of this world. Evil of an old world that has no place in the kingdom. A holy discontent refuses to look away from suffering. It empathizes without resigning. It understands without giving up. It listens and it imagines. A holy discontent refuses to let our imaginations be truncated by the systems we inherited. Systems of patriarchy and racism. Systems of consumerism and greed. Systems of exploitation and death. Systems to which we ourselves contribute. We didn't just inherit these systems. We don't just get to lay all the blame at the feet of a previous generation. We benefit and we contribute. But can we be content in these systems? Can we be content in this world? No. Because a holy discontent believes in a God who created a good world and a God who brings goodness out of rot and decay and death. A God who brings a new kind of life. Which reminds me, a holy discontent means not giving up on God. A holy discontent claims that this God has something to say to me and my community and my world. And this God has said it through the Word and through the Word with a capital W. And in this Word here in John chapter 12, the beloved disciple John drops a big hint in Greek that we can't get in English. Because in English, we've only got one word for life, unfortunately. Greek's got two or three. Hebrews got three or four. Consult your Old Testament elder, Dr. Melton. The life in the paradox that is either loved or hated, it's different than the life that is kept for eternity. It's two different words for life. We have to keep reading and wrestling with these texts even when they confuse us. A holy discontent can do that can keep wrestling, like Jacob with the angel of God, who wrestled with a refusal to stop until he received a blessing. A holy discontent believes in a God who wants to bless. And it believes in a God who is willing to go to great lengths to bless, willing to send the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to bring the world into new life. The son who was willing to go even to the cross, willing even to die like a criminal or like a kernel of wheat that falls to the ground. 
because Jesus knows how to imagine the fruit that can come from death. And it's that kind of imagination, a kingdom imagination, that grows in us and becomes new pathways. It becomes a holy discontent that resolves us to build towards something new. To build new systems. To embody new pathways. Physically in our city. Relationally in our community. Even neurologically in our brains. God, build in us new systems and pathways. Breathe in us new imaginations and plant in us a holy discontent. Spirit, we acknowledge that we are confused by this text. We acknowledge that when we're confused, we often just pass by things. We pray that you would resensitize us To the truth found in Jesus. Resensitize us to our own self-centeredness, to our own willingness to ignore the suffering of others. Reignite our imaginations. In Jesus' name. Amen.